Welcome to the Renting Rhino podcast. I'm Tim Carson, and this podcast series is from our latest men's conference at New West Community Church, where I'm the Associate Pastor of Discipleship. We are a Baptist church committed to a Reformed theology, expositional preaching, intentionally intercultural, and hold a high view of God and the scriptures. If you want to know more about New West Community Church, you can find us at newwestcommunitychurch.com. The men's conference theme was Man's Quest for Meaning, and this episode is a recording of the fourth session entitled Man's Quest for Relationship by Brother Andrew Nduma. Being the most eloquent and spontaneous among all the speakers, I have to match my presentation to appear as the techie one. And of course, that's not true. <laughs> Hence, the uh, the guide to uh, hopefully be able to uh, speak to you today on the topic of man's quest for relationship. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for uh, having me again this year. The relish is back. Now, relationships, as we know, can be very perplexing. And there isn't any shortage of people depicting their status as it's complicated in today's social networking platforms. So when Pastor Tim assigned this topic to me, uh, this modern status, it's complicated, immediately came to mind and prompted me to wonder what makes many relationships so complex these days? Is it really that complicated? Even for some of us here, perhaps. Or is it possible that by actively pursuing and intentionally keeping relationships, as they were originally intended, that long-lasting and fulfilling connections can be a sustained reality. But let me be clear, though, that uh, my intention today is not to speak specifically on romantic relationships or on marital issues. Therefore, I will not be providing tips on how or where to find a perfect mate or suggest some romantic love languages to improve your marriages or those who are single discerning God's will for their lifetime partner. You're in the wrong conference. So my humble attempt aims to focus on two most important connections we ought to pursue. A growing relationship with God and with our neighbor in general. And I hope that you will be gracious to hear my humble thoughts on this topic, hopefully within the purview of our faith and within the following general key points. Why do we pursue relationships and why is it important? How does it look like to do this in the context of our faith and as men of God? So first, let us establish the origin of natural of our natural inclination to pursue relationships. And I assume that we can, we can all agree that God is the ultimate author of relationships. And we know this to be true as it is the primary theme of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. 
that it is God's intention to establish a relationship between humanity and himself. Right from the initial pages, we witness God's creation of human beings as the pinnacle of his physical creation. According to Genesis 1.27, humankind was created in the image of God, signifying that we bear some semblance to God in some general form and appearance, as well as possessing very limited and minuscule portion of his cognitive abilities. His purpose for relationship with man is clear. He has made us in his likeness to announce him, reflect his character, and to rule the world he created for us. He has made us his masterpiece. However, it is important to likewise establish that given this premise, despite man's uniqueness, man is not necessarily essential for God to experience relationship. In Genesis 1.26, the use of the plural pronouns, let us, our image, like us, suggests the presence of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now this indicates that God exists as three persons in one essence, highlighting the truth that God is in a holy and perfect relationship, therefore complete. And while we cannot fully understand everything about the Trinity in our fallen state, God made it possible though for us to have some solid grasp of what it means for God to be three in one. The Bible indicates that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. That the Trinity means that each person has a distinct center of consciousness. Thus, they can relate or they relate to each other personally. The Son is not a third of the being of God. He's all of the being of God. The Father is not a third of the being of God. He is all of the being of God's. And likewise, the Holy Spirit being the, all the being of God. As Wayne Grudem writes, when we speak of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit together, we are not speaking of any greater being than when we speak of the Father alone, the Son alone, and the Holy Spirit alone. So notice that although the three divine persons are distinct, we are baptized into their name, not names. Three persons are distinct, yet only constitute one name. And this can only be if they share one essence. And therefore, from the sacred and flawless relationship in the Holy Trinity, God does not need man. But through the perfect unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, man became beneficiaries of God's many attributes. And one of the most important of these is his love. God's boundless love and grace motivate his longing for humanity to experience the profound beauty and strength of a deep connection with him. And this connection not only enhances our relationship with God, but also enables us to cultivate meaningful connections with others. 
And the Bible, as we know, is replete and consistently underscores that the core of this relational framework lies in, in God's love. First John 4, 16 says, So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and, and God abides in him. First John 4, 9-10, In this love, God, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Of course, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but to have eternal life. These passages emphasize that God takes the initiative in establishing a loving relationship with humanity. But it is also crucial for us to not only find comfort in that truth, in the truth that we have a loving God who pursues us, but for us to also acknowledge the significance of our own pursuit of God. So when we wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly seek Him, in Jeremiah 29, 13, it says that we will indeed find him. So this necessitates training our hearts, our minds, as our natural tendencies to drift away from God due to our sinful nature. Just as what Pastor Paul has alluded earlier, that we need to build spiritual muscles, train our spirits, train our minds and our hearts. Romans 3, 10 to 12 affirms this, that it stated that no one, no one is righteous. No one is actively seeking God. So it's God who pursues us. But despite God pursuing man out of his love, man made the conscious decision to reject his love and follow a different path. After Adam and Eve sinned, they did not run toward God. They ran away from him, hiding among the trees in the garden. But God pursued them. The Lord called the man, where are you? It was the first missionary effort. The creator sought, sought out his lost creatures. Now seeking something implies pursuing it, actively pursuing it. And as human beings, we naturally pursue various things that hold importance to us, such as romantic love, Wealth, fame, esteemed positions in our careers. But in a similar but more noble manner, God relentlessly pursues us because we hold significance to Him being created in His image. Jesus taught several parables to illustrate God's unwavering pursuit of humanity. For instance, in the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin in Luke 15, Jesus conveyed the message that God actively seeks for us. Jesus aimed to help us comprehend the heart of God and his intimate knowledge of each individual in Matthew 10 and Psalm 139. And in Luke 19, it says that Jesus' earthly mission was to seek and save the lost. God's relentless pursuit of humanity is ultimately demonstrated through the sacrificial act of sending his beloved son to die on our behalf. And despite our inability to reach him through our own efforts, God extends his hand 
even when we are resistant. Jesus had come in the flesh to pursue those he created, but they rejected him. To this day, God continues to pursue and draw many souls to Christ for salvation. Through his indwelling, indwelling Holy Spirit, he comforts, he corrects, and he compels his children to obey the word. He disciplines us as part of his process of shaping us into becoming more like Jesus. He pursues a deeper commitment from us because it is only when, as, as we abide in him and he in us, that we actually can bear much fruit for the kingdom. And therefore, his desire for a relationship with us is for our good. God in his infinite wisdom has instilled within us that natural longing for companionship. And this is evident in Genesis 2.18 where God acknowledges that it is not beneficial for man to be alone and therefore creates a suitable partner for him. When it comes to pursuing relationships, particularly in the context of seeking a potential spouse, the Bible provides explicit guidance in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And with what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. These verses serve as a clear stipulation from God if we are to reflect his desire for us to thrive in our relationships. Furthermore, the Bible contains a multitude of teachings that emphasize the importance of cultivating affinities that honor God. It follows then that our perspective on relationships must align with his design as it plays a vital role in nurturing deep and loving connections with God and with our fellow individuals. Now, this leads us to the golden or royal law stated in Mark 12, 28 to 31. It says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, this passage serves as a clear foundation for understanding God's intended concept of relationships which is rooted in love. God commands us to prioritize our love for him above all else, as it is through this love that we can actually authentically and genuinely love others as we love ourselves. And similar to the scribe who questioned Jesus, we, we would often find ourselves entangled in our own limited perspectives and occasionally driven by sinful motives when we engage with our neighbors. So given this great commandment as the fundamental framework of relationships, how does it really look like to love God with our entire being? How does this practically translate into loving others 
as we love ourselves. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The pursuit of loving God with all that we are is definitely not an easy command. In fact, it is indeed impossible for any man to obey this command in their natural fallen state. There is no greater evidence of inability of man to obey God's law than this one commandment. Due to our fallen nature, it is humanly impossible for any of us to consistently love God with our entire being every hour of every day. However, it is crucial to recognize that disobedience to any of God's commands constitutes sin. Therefore, even without considering the daily sins we commit, our inability to fulfill this commandment alone condemns us already. Jesus consistently reminded the Pharisees of their inability to uphold God's law, aiming to make them aware of their spiritual bankruptcy and their need for a savior. For without the cleansing of sin provided by Jesus and the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of the redeemed, loving God to any extent remains unachievable. So the question remains, how can we truly love God as we ought to? Well, to love someone requires knowing that person. We cannot love someone we don't know. So knowing God as intimately as we can should be our first priority. By consciously loving God, our devotion for Him and our desire to know Him will intensify over time. And this concept is not strange to us. It's so relatable that as we often would put varying degrees of effort to acquire some knowledge about someone who we are passionate about. For instance, when pursuing a romantic relationship, we invest time, energy, to really know our potential life partner, right? And similarly, some of you probably, who may be, uh, some of you here may be following a sports hero, are keeping updated with, with their games or with your sports hero stats. And in fact, sometimes even uh, their performance affects your mood on certain occasions. <laughs> and I'm sure some of us here have uh, favorite theologians eagerly seeking their latest books or paying to attend their speaking events even out of town. Now, these examples demonstrate the lengths we are willing to go to know someone we are so passionate about. So story time here. When I pursued my wife, Anna, to be my girlfriend more than 30 years ago, I'll never forget how I had to put up a brave front every time I came to visit her. You see, my wife is the youngest of five siblings and the only daughter. Her dad being a known uh, tough policeman in our little city, had ties with many local powerful politicians and influential personalities. Influential meaning, well, we cannot go there. <laughs> so it follows that their family is quite known in our area. And you can perhaps imagine me being the scrawny five foot seven scrawny dude, having to be interrogated or sized up 
by any of her over six foot tall, well-built father and four brothers. But it was never really their intimidating presence or appearance or occasional skeptic demeanor towards me that scared me. It was her father's subtle threat that kept me on my toes. And what do I mean by subtle threat? Well, he would conspicuously place a gun or two in certain areas of the house where I was allowed to be. <laughs> that was his nonverbal way of communicating a very important message to me. And looking back, I could say that was his tough love language towards me. Now the point here is that I would do anything to conquer my fear just to know and be with my future wife. And I praise God that after nine years of exclusive dating, my father-in-law became my brother in the Lord. He got saved on our wedding day after hearing our testimony of how the Lord sustained our relationship towards marriage. He repented of his sins. He asked the Lord to be the, he asked Jesus to be his Lord and Savior. He became a member of our little church. Eventually he retired from service and led a ministry for retired policemen and senior citizens. He also financially supported many struggling pastors and many mission churches all over the Philippines. Last year, the Lord took him home. His tombstone boldly displays Philippians 121. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, typically the same goes for any believer who is serious to grow in the faith. He takes every opportunity to be more cognizant of God's love. He starts to acknowledge God's sovereignty, aligns his thoughts, his actions, his desires with God's will, and begins to bear fruit. He sees difficult times as an opportunity to increase his faith. He seizes these moments to shine bright for God. And those who earnestly seek God and prioritize loving him above all else will naturally be consumed by godly pursuits. They will eagerly engage in studying his word, praying, obeying, and honoring him, sharing the message of Jesus Christ with others. So for those of you who want to know about the... Um, sharing of the gospel that Pastor Paul and Dean, they, I believe they lead that. It's every Wednesday by the... Yeah, yeah, every second Wednesday. This is an opportunity. By engaging in these spiritual disciplines, their love for God develops, leading them to love God with their entire being. This love becomes evident not only in their words, choices, or decisions, but also in their actions. Now, we have heard of stories of many heroes in the faith who persevered and paid a high cost as they followed Jesus. But we also know of so many others who walked away when things turned difficult. It is when they were confronted with the harsh reality of having to give up something too valuable for God. And sometimes Jesus lets people walk away. 
In Mark chapter 10, gives us a story of the rich young man who wanted to follow Jesus. The man fell on his knees before Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And clearly he understood that there's something about Jesus that's significant. The man cares about the right thing. He even comes to the right place. However, he makes a mistake by focusing too much on what actions he needs to take. He believed strongly in his own moral practice and feels confident in his ability to follow instructions. Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. The man answered, teacher, all these I have kept since I was a boy. He was so confident in his own good works, but Jesus sees things differently. And the next verse is key. It said, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus cares deeply for this man and does not want him to remain trapped in his misguided belief that his own efforts and determination are sufficient. But Jesus does not indulge the man's ego by praising his abilities. Instead, Jesus gives him a direct instruction. Go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. There was no room for negotiation. There was no room for confusion. Jesus required everything. At this point, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. It was a very powerful moment because Jesus loves the man and allows him to leave. Does that surprise you? Jesus doesn't run after the man and lower his expectations. He doesn't try to negotiate or settle a lesser amount that the man would be comfortable with. Jesus asks for everything. That is the command. No room for compromise. You see, brothers, having a relationship with God means that out of his love, he pursues us, and we only have to respond with full obedience and uncompromising faith. Having a relationship with God is really not complicated, but it is costly. Jesus loves us far too much to feed our egos and give us a pat on the back. Instead, he issues commands far beyond our ability to obey that we will be drawn to him on our knees and fully rely on him. Have you considered the importance of counting the cost yet, just like the rich young man? Are you currently struggling to develop a deep relationship with God and fully rely on him? Well, if that's the case, be encouraged because the Holy Spirit has the power to cultivate love within our hearts. This is his purpose. As stated in Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all of those. Therefore, it's evident that genuine love is produced by the Holy Spirit. But it's important to note that the Holy Spirit does not produce the fruit of love apart from faith in Jesus. 
and obedience in the word. The Holy Spirit is utterly committed to getting glory for Jesus. As the Lord Jesus said in John John 16, Uh, John Piper puts it, when you want to become a loving person, by all means, pray for the transforming and empowering work of the Holy Spirit. But also take down your Bible and look to Jesus in his word. Meditate longingly on his promises until he satisfies your heart with all that God is for you in him. And when that happens, the spirit and his fruit of love will flow. It makes sense then that the absence of a genuine and active faith in Jesus, prompting obedience to God's command, is the key issue for many who struggle to have a relationship with God. So how's your faith? Your love for Jesus? Obedience to his word these days, my brothers. Number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the next part of the greatest commandment instructs us to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus primarily quoted and summarized Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18. If you have your Bibles, you can follow and uh, read with me there. Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hard worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in heart, in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or beat a grudge or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in essence, the command to love our neighbor entails taking actions that promote their well-being and prevent harm or injustice that often arise from a heart filled with hatred. It requires us to not only prioritize our own welfare, but also to consider the physical circumstances of our neighbors while being mindful not to lead them into sin. The Bible is clear in reminding us that man's heart is sinful. Therefore, the practical demonstration of love towards our neighbors begins by actively monitoring our thoughts, our emotions, as we engage with one another. Here's a few more um, uh, exhortations for us in Mark 7, 21 to 23. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. 
All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Add to that Galatians 5, 19-21. It also says to avoid idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Furthermore, 2 Timothy 3, 1-5. In, in the last days, people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And last three words, avoid such people. Given these very clear principles as we deal with our neighbors, engaging in these reprobate behaviors can contribute or cost failed relationships, even among the saints. The phrase avoid such people reminds us to stay away from these corrupted connections. And similarly, we should make sure that we're not intentionally engaging in these behaviors ourselves. So others will not be stumbled and therefore fittingly avoid us as well. Furthermore, loving our neighbor extends beyond practical actions and behaviors. It becomes crucial to encourage them to develop a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. As their eternal destiny is at stake. This means that our obedience to the command of loving others must originate from taking that greater responsibility of sharing and living out the gospel for our neighbors, for their salvation and for their edification. Just as someone invested their time and resources to share the gospel with us, leading to our experience of forgiveness, eternal life and blessings, we carry the same weight of sharing the same message of extending love to our neighbors. In doing so, we tangibly demonstrate God's love within us, turning the act of loving our neighbors into a reality and truly a transformative experience. And looking back in October of 1994, I would have loved to be reconnected to my professor who took his time sharing the gospel during his business ethics class. He would take half of his time to teach and then challenge the rest of us to stay for some worldview discussions. Only to find out that there will be like five of us left in the class out of 40. And then until just the two of us left. That semester ended with one soul being saved. And not knowing that it was the very exact time and period of my early Christian walk. Not knowing, not knowing that my wife is also being led by her classmate to the Lord. Well, she was then my girlfriend. People invest in sharing the gospel. We too must do the same. Now, here's the caveat. As we pursue a loving relationship with our neighbor, like all neighborly deeds done in good intention, we are to guard our own hearts and learn from the story in Mark 10 and avoid the same heart issue. Now, we know that the story of Good Samaritan found in Luke 10, 25 to 37, is often taught as a lesson on love your neighbor as yourself and doing good deeds based on the actions of the Good Samaritan. 
However, it is crucial to consider the context and the purpose of Jesus, the purpose behind Jesus telling this story. Jesus did not share this story solely to encourage his audience to perform good deeds. His intention was to challenge the self-righteous expert in the law who may have been a Pharisee and asked him a question. The expert's motive was to test Jesus rather than genuinely seeking guidance on how to inherit eternal life. He hoped that Jesus would downplay the significance of following the law to attain righteousness and eternal life. But as we know, the purpose of the story was to confront the self-righteousness of the expert in the law and highlight his failure to obey the, the two great commandments. Jesus aimed to show that the expert had not genuinely loved his neighbor as himself, despite believing he had faithfully loved God and his preferred neighbor. By illustrating how the expert would have not shown the same care and compassion as the good Samaritan, Jesus revealed that he had not fulfilled the commandment to love God with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. The realization meant that the expert did not meet the requirements to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus intended for the expert to recognize his need for grace, just like the prostitute and the tax collectors needed. In the end, Jesus asked him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The expert replied, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The same tall order applies to us brothers. In our pursuit of loving our neighbors, it is important to recognize the potential trap of self-righteousness. It is often easier to show kindness and be good neighbors to those who share our beliefs, our values, our faith, as they align with our comfort zones. However, it is essential to reflect on whether we genuinely love those with whom we disagree. How do we handle individuals who hold opposing political or doctrinal views? Are we sincerely praying for one another? Do we extend grace and mercy to each other? Are we content with labeling certain relationships as complicated to avoid the challenges of embodying Christ's love? Let us consider these questions and strive to overcome the barriers that hinder us from truly loving others. As we know, these past couple of years, there has been a significant increase in discord and division, even within the body of Christ. Differing opinions and strong convictions on pressing issues has resulted in numerous conflicts between couples, parents versus children, siblings, uh, employers and workers, public authorities, constituents, pastors and congregants, and many long-standing friendships. It remains uncertain whether some of these relationships can be fully restored in the future. Given the enemy's efforts to create more confusion, to distort the truth, it is likely that many of these relationships will either continue to clash or experience dissonance for a very long time. The issue of getting vaccinated or not. While it does not pertain to spiritual salvation or sanctification, it is disheartening to witness. It has caused many hurting relationships, due to exchange of harsh words 
gossiping, even conniving in guise of fellowship and prayer meeting. Not in this church, though. Just putting it out. But in some circles, we know. This is really more damaging to the body of Christ, more than to anyone in particular. So if you find yourself in a situation like this, may I encourage you that you must desire and work towards loving and reconciled connections, but without compromising your love for God. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 also says, To aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. God is the ultimate source of all enduring and deeply meaningful relationships. Your willful pursuit of God can radically change your perspectives and your positions, your desires and your dreams, your temper and your tone, your demeanor and your behavior, your words and your actions. Another important reason to consider is the temporary nature of this world and its desires in contrast to the everlasting promise of heaven. Pastor Gary last night has um, uh, pointed to us the joy that awaits for us in eternity. Even our deeply held positions on many issues are bound to, to cease. Even our well-intentioned efforts for the greater good will eventually fade away. Our disagreements, our debates, our conflicts are all fleeting as the reality of the world we know is destined to diminish, perhaps even sooner than we think. And so it goes, it goes back to loving God above everything and everyone. So as I close, choose your greatest love, brothers. Would it be the world or God? 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, this passage warns us of loving the world. It warns us not to settle for affections that do not last. Worldliness primarily stems from the condition of our hearts. When our hearts are captivated by the world and its values, we naturally develop an affection for things or even relationships that do not or are, are not aligned with God's principles. And in today's world, the pervasive influence of modern media amplifies the pull toward worldly temptations. We constantly are bombarded with convincing individuals who suggest that true happiness can only be achieved through owning a certain product, adopting a specific lifestyle, or engaging even in compromised relationships. Social media further entices us with images of beautiful women, luxurious homes, fancy cars, expensive possessions. It can be a very slippery slope if we are not cautious and discerning in our choices. But let me reiterate that when John mentions not loving the things of the world, he's not suggesting that you should hate your belongings. 
your house, your car, your material possessions. He's not suggesting to abandon, abandon friendships or relationships altogether. Instead, he further explains these things in 2.16 as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So in essence, worldliness is primarily an attitude driven by improper desires and selfish promotion of oneself. Because even a person with a few possessions can be worldly if they, they desire those things as the key to happiness. And on the other hand, a wealthy individual may not be worldly if they appropriate their possessions as steward of God and as means to advance God's purpose and bring Him glory. A person who obsessively longs for a companionship more than finding contentment in Christ's sufficiency, or people who brag about their seemingly flawless marriages and family life, it's possible that they have unknowingly made these things their idols. So to be worldly is to operate on the same principles as unregenerate people. It is to think and act out of selfishness, greed, pride, and personal ambition. It is to have a selfish desire for the things that you do not have and a simple, sinful pride in the things that you do have. So just to hammer this point a bit more. So if you're someone who refrains from drinking alcoholic beverages because you want to impress others with how spiritual you are, then you are being proud and you're not drinking. And by looking with contempt on those who do, then you are actually being worldly by not drinking. But I do not say that for, to encourage anyone here to drink. I'm only pointing out that worldliness is not a matter of keeping some list of do's and don'ts just to appear pious. It is a matter of your heart motives before God. As I close, brothers, as we pursue relationships... We all battle these temptations daily, and we often fail. However, John emphasizes that if we constantly give in to our desires for physical pleasure, material possessions, and sinful pride, we are not truly showing love for God. Instead, we are prioritizing our love for worldly things. People who are focused on worldly matters indulge in these temptations, but God's children will constantly strive to resist them. As we pursue, as we succeed and excel in our own relationships, let us make an inventory of our current loves and passions that could be pulling us away from fully loving God and therefore enabling us to love our neighbors. Repent. Repent from your mistakes. Resist the lures of this world and be restored in your fellowship with God and his saints. Know that the quest for lasting and God-honoring relationships is not really complicated. It's just costly, but absolutely worth it. Praise the Lord.